The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. It's the week of the 2017 Nobel Prizes. This year, the Physiology and Medicine Prize went to scientists who discovered the proteins that time our biological clocks. The Physics Prize went to the scientists who detected the waves that warp and twist our protons. And the Chemistry Prize went to scientists who developed a technique to use very cold temperatures to allow us to see the atomic makeup of the structures in our cells. But what is the Nobel Prize? And what's it for? Today, we discuss the history of the prizes with medical historian Nils Hansen and the legacy and diversity, or lack thereof, of the prizes with Harriet Zuckerman. And we'll discuss a different, sillier prize, the Ig Nobel Prizes, with Mark Abrahams, to make sure that you laugh and then think. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer with Science News and Society for Science in the Public. Welcome to Science for the People. Every year in October, a few lucky scientists will be woken, often in the middle of the night, by a phone call. In that call, someone with a Swedish accent will inform them of the good news. They have won a Nobel Prize. After that, those scientists will be fated the world over. There will be interviews and gala balls and much more. They will be the next generation of the rock stars of science. But what is the Nobel Prize, and why did it become the uh, the, the Nobel Prize <laughs> of prizes? <laughs> to help us out, I'm here with Nils Hansen, a medical historian at Heinrich Heine University in Dusseldorf, Germany, who has published extensively on the winners and the almost winners of the Nobel Prize in Medicine. Nils, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. First of all, the Nobel Prize was given for the first time in 1901 and named for Alfred Nobel. Can you tell me who he was and why he wanted to give out a gigantic prize? Alfred Nobel uh, was fr uh, from a wealthy Swedish uh, family. He had uh, relatives in uh, many different countries and he traveled uh, the world during his lifetime. During the end of his uh, life, he lived in, in Italy and uh, France. And there is an anecdote. Uh, I'm not really certain if, if that's entirely correct. But one day he was uh, reading the the newspaper and it said that Alfred Nobel had died. And his legacy to mankind was that he had invented dynamite, which he had and that had been used for, for murdering uh, tens of thousands of thousands of people. Uh, actually, uh, that was kind of a mistake because he hadn't died <laughs> and the uh, obituary in the newspaper referred to his brother who in fact had died uh, and that then he started thinking well should that really be my legacy inventor of dynamite uh, terror around the world uh, and he started figure, figuring out an alternative legacy so the story says that he sat in a, a bar in Paris and wrote his will uh, it's really, the will is really short. Uh, it's like the size of a, a napkin, some, somewhat bigger, where he said, well, I want to give away a large part of my money, he was a very wealthy man at that time, to a, a foundation. And this foundation should hand out uh, prizes for the greatest benefit of mankind. That's how he phrased it in his, in his will. And he mentioned five prize categories, uh, physics, chemistry, physiology or medi medicine, uh, peace or literature. 
Uh, and this, uh, he passed away. Uh, I think he, he he signed his will in 1895, died a few years later, and the first Nobel Prize was awarded in 1901. It's now my goal to write my will in a bar in Paris on a cocktail napkin. I feel like that's a great life goal to have. <laughs> yeah. Now, Nobel decided to give out a Nobel Prize, and it's become kind of the Olympics of science. Why has it become such a prestigious thing to get? I deal with the history of the no I've dealt with the history of the Nobel Prize a, a few years, uh, and uh, it's it's my main interest. And still, I cannot really answer that question uh, because it's. I think there are many factors. First of all, Alfred Nobel was, as I said, a uh, famous uh, person at the turn of the 20th century. His prize had an international ambition. And you mentioned the Olympic Games. I think you can really compare it to the Olympic Games. There are like five categories, like uh, and the Pierre de Coubertin also seems like a coincidence, but I'm not sure it is, uh, founded um, the Olympic Games or reinvented the Olympic Games in 1896 in order to bridge national differences. And I think that was also one of Alfred Nobel's uh, aims for, for the Nobel Prizes. That's one part of the story. And I think another factor is that the laureates receive a large prize sum from really from the start. Nowadays, it's about one million US dollars per, 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 per laureate. And already from the beginning, uh, the prize was awarded in Sweden and the, uh, uh, the prize ceremony was uh, uh, quite, uh, they, they tried to do it as, as fancy as possible. Um, the royal family took part in the festivities and there was some, some large noble dinner and the laureate was supposed to give a speech. Uh, so it had a, uh, it was, was, uh, qu quite a, a cool thing, thing all, all, already from the beginning. And interestingly enough, nowadays we see that the most prestigious, uh, benchmark of excellence, uh, not only for, for scientists, but also for laymen, because almost everyone knows about the Nobel Prize, they read about it in the newspaper. And so, but all, already from the beginning, world media covered uh, the Nobel Prize uh, story, and also I'm particularly interested in the Physiolo Physiology or Medicine Prize, and uh, you can see in the, the big U.S. Paper, uh, U.S. medical journals, the major ones, uh, JAMA or New England Journal of Medicine, uh, wrote about the prize, and interestingly enough, uh, <laughs> already during the first decade of the 20th century, U.S. Americans complained that the prize had not yet begun to to, uh, to honor American scientists, but you don't read the, those comments anymore <laughs> in, in, in American press. And how exactly does one win a Nobel Prize? Who determines who gets the Nobel Prize? Yes, there are, um, uh, given there's five categories, there are some differences how they pick the laureates. But if we talk about the science prize, it's almost the same. Uh, professors of science or medicine in the Scandinavian countries uh, may nominate scholars uh, for the award. And the Nobel committees uh, for physiology or medicine, there are uh, a Nobel committee and the Nobel assembly at the Karolinska Institute in uh, Stockholm, a medical school. They also invite uh, certain universities around the world, representatives of universities, and some 
uh, scientific uh, um, societies to propose to write nomination uh, letters. And, and so nowadays they get around 300 nominees or 400, 300 to 500 nominees per year for the Physiology of Medicine Prize. And then the work really starts for the Nobel Committee to uh, evaluate these nominees. And uh, they, they have different steps of doing that. In the end, they come up with a short list of some 10 or 20, 30 uh, candidates where they write extensive uh, evaluation, personal ev evaluations on these uh, scholars. And then finally, the Nobel Assembly at Karolinska University, uh, uh, Karolinska Institute, become, is that, that is a group of uh, 50 professors in Stockholm, they select one to three laureates in the end. Why you've been studying, you know, Nobel laureates and the also rounds. What draws you to studying this prize in particular? Well, as you mentioned in your uh, introduction, the, the the Nobel Prize is seen as the most prestigious uh, award whatsoever in in um, in science uh, and medicine. And I think it's uh, if 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 one would like to investigate what excellence means in medicine and science. I think it's it's very interesting to use the Nobel Prize as a lens or as a window to look at mechanisms of scientific excellence or how do uh, reward mechanisms in science really work behind the curtains. Um, uh, so that's why I'm, I'm very interested in looking at Nobel Prize nominations and Nobel Prize evaluations of scholars to investigate how the ev evaluation of, of excellence uh, uh, is, is done in this particular context. And you've mentioned that you want to study excellence, but also that there's way more scientists out there who have done amazing things than there are people who have won Nobel Prizes. And you're interested in those, those also rounds. Uh, the people who didn't win the Nobel Prize. Why do people not win a Nobel Prize? <laughs> <laughs> well, first, first for the laureates, it's, it's very, very seldom the case that you get nominated once, and then that you, you, you receive the prize the, the same year or the next year. Uh, Alfred Nobel wrote in his will that it's not only a, a discovery to, for the for the greatest benefit of mankind, but also a discovery that was done last year or during the preceding year. Uh, and already from the uh, beginning, uh, the committee uh, noticed, well, that's that's an impossible task to uh, find uh, the, the, the scholar who has made the most important discovery the last year because discoveries need time to really get recognition. Uh, so even for the laureates, they are often nominated for a time span of, of 10 or sometimes, sometimes 20 years. There are some uh, scholars who got the Nobel Prize finally, but did their prize-winning uh, discoveries for more than uh, 30, 40 years ago. So even for the non-laureates, for the I, I, I uh, perhaps somewhat provocatively uh, refer to them as highly qualified losers, there are uh, some that were nominated over 10, 20, 30, 40 years, again and again and again, and also uh, got some interest from, by, the, by the Nobel Committee, but did not uh, receive the, the prize at the end. And I tried to look for certain patterns how not to win the Nobel Prize. All of these candidates really 
uh, done numerous uh, case studies on those people who did not uh, win their prize uh, in the end. I, I like that. That's a great life goal to be a highly qualified loser. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Have you ever told somebody who is like still alive, like, hey, you're one of my highly qualified losers? Well, to access the Noble Archive in, uh, in Stockholm, there's a time lag of the uh, files, Noble Archive files. Uh, of, of 50 years so right now you can uh, see all the files from 1901 to 1967 and so those candidates in the in the 1960s often did their uh, achievements a few decades uh, uh, before so they're they're not alive i have not yet met a, a noble highly qualified loser <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, um, where, where I've studied their files. The best thing about being a historian is that you cannot offend somebody who is already dead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I was particularly interested reading some of your work um, at the kind of there are fields of science who have that have actually kind of been passed over for prizes. And in particular, you've written a paper on anesthesiology, which is one of the most important discoveries in the history of medicine, because before it, people would have to be awake while doctors did things like cut off their limbs or remove their appendix. But no one has ever won a Nobel Prize for the discovery of general anesthesia. Why not? Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's uh, an interesting case if we if we look at thousands of Nobel Prize nominations we can see some trends over time what was recognized as cutting edge uh, science during a particular time and and why was that the case and anesthesia is, is one example there were plenty of uh, scholars that were put forward for a Nobel Prize uh, at the turn of the 20th century um, some German uh, scholars, Carlo Schleich, an American um, example would be William Halstead, uh, the Johns Hopkins uh, in, in, in Baltimore, and some other scientists were repeatedly nominated for the Nobel Prize. And the Nobel Committee was very interested in uh, anesthesia because it, it, it had, as, as you uh, said, it, for surgery, it was a kind of a revolution in, in, in surgery. Uh, and many of these scholars were also evaluated by the Nobel Committee. And then you can see a pattern in anesthesia, as you also can see in heart surgery in 1940, 50, 60, where also many, many heart surgeons, heart surgeons were nominated for the prize because of all of the progress in that particular area. And there, that's really the, the, the same thing if you compare these examples that the Nobel Committee really counted too many heads. Uh, to single out one, three, two, or three laureates who have made uh, important uh, achievements. Uh, there was a scientific priority dispute, uh, and they, they couldn't really say who has done most in this particular area because there was progress in so many countries, and uh, there were so many active research teams um, that uh, did work in that uh, area. So basically, because they can't give everyone a prize, nobody gets a prize. Yes, and that still is one of the main criticisms if you look at uh, a Nobel Prize uh, in, in the media, that nowadays uh, there are uh, or uh, Nobel Prize research is not conducted by one, two, or three people, but rather by lar really large research teams. 
And you can also see that trend at the turn of the 20th century, although probably uh, uh, not as big teams <laughs> today. And I was especially interested in um, one of the papers that you wrote. There was a guy who invented what kind of became the Nautilus exercise equipment, and he got nominated for a Nobel Prize. Can you tell us that story? If we look at the shortlists, Nobel Prize shortlist, and Christian Elliott mentioned from 1901 to, say, 1920, 1930, the lion's share of all nominees is, uh, like, uh, lab-based uh, research, uh, microbiologists, physiologists, some surgeons, some pharmacologists, but that the, really the, the main areas where the people get nominated for a Nobel Prize. But there are some, I would say, spectacular exceptions to that rule. And one is a Swede, uh, Gustav Sander, who was uh, uh, quite famous uh, around in, in Europe at the turn of the uh, 20th century. His claim to fame was that, as you mentioned, he had created uh, some 40, 50, 60 devices, how you could train your, your body or, or, um, or exercise, really. And uh, he uh, put all his uh, machines in rooms, <laughs> like in, in, in spas, and even at the, the Titanic, there was a sander room with some uh, sander devices so the uh, uh, passengers could, could train while, while overseas. Um, and these standard institutes uh, spread around the world. There was one in the Central Park in, in New York, and um, Epicentrum, I think, was in Germany and, uh, the, and, and around Europe, some in Russia as well. So that was a large, uh, great success uh, for him at the, the turn of the 20th century, and he was proposed for the Nobel Prize in 1916 by a Swedish... Uh, orthopedists, uh, and who also worked at the Karolinska uh, Institute. And interestingly enough, he was uh, also put on the shortlist in 1916, but, and he was evaluated quite positively as well, but during the First World War, or at least during the first war years, the Nobel Committee decided not uh, to award uh, Nobel Prizes in physiology or medicine. So still, we do not really know how good his chances were in um, 1916. And he was never, at least to my knowledge, nominated again, partly because the whole Sander Institute trend went downhill um, until it got a revival in the 1970s, 80s with the Nautilus concept. And if you compare his pictures from from around 1900 to uh, Nautilus devices today, you can really see stunning similarity. Uh, I think that's that's a fascinating uh, Nobel Prize nominee in 1960. Now, and so we've mentioned people who you know maybe were a little too visionary, maybe they were just kind of too ahead of their time, or there were just too many people, and so nobody got a prize. So what does it take to win a Nobel Prize? What what has to happen? Yes, that would be, uh, if you look at the laureates, they also have some uh, uh, some factors in, in, in common. Uh, well, first of all, you need to, to become a laureate. You need good friends in, 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 science, in the scientific community that write very good nominations. That's another... Uh, factor I have discussed in, in papers when I looked at many nominations, I see that some are that poor 
that if you have friends writing such nominations, who needs enemies? <laughs> One example is uh, the uh, neurosurgeon, brain surgeon Harvey Cushing from the uh, United States, who also was nominated so many, uh, so many times. I think thirty or forty times for the Nobel Prize, also uh, for for various achievements. And that was really the problem. His nominators send lists like we think Harvey Cushing is prize worthy because of then a list from A to Z <laughs> with with different accomplishments. And the Nobel Committee is looking for one a groundbreaking, so to speak, discovery and not a wide range of uh, achievements. So poor nominators is also So basically you need to achieve one big thing but not too many things and have a lot of very good friends. That's a good summary. <laughs> <laughs> Nils, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We've linked to more information about Nils Hansen's work at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next, when most people think of the Nobel Prize, they think of people like Einstein or Pauling. They think of older white guys in ivy-covered institutions. Why is that? And what does it mean for science? Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. The Nobel Prizes are famous for honoring good science. In the process, they've created kind of a nobility of science, a scientific elite, if you will. To talk more about this, I'm here with Harriet Zuckerman, a sociologist of science at Columbia University and author of the book Scientific Elite, Nobel Laureates in the United States. Dr. Zuckerman, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's good to be here. First, in your work, you have interviewed more than a 100 Nobel laureates. What are some of the overarching themes that you kind of get from your interviews with them? Are there things they have in common other than, you know, having won the Nobel Prize? Oh, indeed, there are. Uh, there, I think it's important to stress at the very beginning, they have many things in common, but that doesn't mean that they're, the things I'm going to mention aren't also present in other very good science and scientists. Uh, these are people who, uh, at least the ones that I know and talk to, uh, it's important to recognize that these are people who've worked in the United States. Now, that doesn't mean that they aren't um, or are different from uh, those from Europe and other places. Um, they, uh, for the most part, were educated at a very small number of uh, graduate schools, your your uh, listeners, I'm sure, know that you can't do really major scientific work without having a PhD, and that um, where one goes to graduate school is a very important start for the career. So the Nobel laureates that I studied amazingly took their degrees, that is, half of them took their degrees at just five places. And uh, that uh, was a very striking finding, uh, striking um, because one has to ask what led to that. 
what was the cause of that? Uh, and uh, as I pursued uh, that those questions uh, with them, it turned out that they were seeking uh, to get their scientific training with um, science senior scientists who themselves were at the forefront of work in their fields. So even as students, they knew where um, what one might call the hot science was being done. And the other side of it, which I thought was in many ways as uh, important, I also, of course, talked to, to the ones that I interviewed about their students. And uh, I asked them how it was, you know, what, what it was like to be the teachers of these uh, people who ultimately became great scientists, but who they encountered first when they were, you know, just out of college. Um, they, too, were very, very selective about who they would allow, who they would want to spend uh, time in their laboratories. And so uh, I, I ended up thinking that there was a kind of matchmaking procedure that excellent students know, knew where to go. And uh, already accomplished scientists were had their eyes open and ears open for the best young people that they could uh, have work in their laboratories. Um, and it's that matching procedure which is a very important part of the story of the um, the things that Nobel Prize winners have in common. Uh, they've gone to to work in the best labs, and uh, they've been chosen by uh, very uh, accomplished scientists. Now, that doesn't mean this is true of all of them, by no means. But um, the the outcome of that is a kind of clumping so that it's not just that five of them get their degree, that uh, half of them get their degrees in five places, but that um, a lot of very good science is done in a relatively small share of institutions. Now, that's changed a bit. When I did my work, um, it was this um, clumping of great science was more pronounced than it is now. There are more places in the United States and universities that uh, are excellent. And that's, that's a highly desirable uh, uh, circumstance. But so the first step is this, go to the best graduate school you possibly can and um, get to work with the best people you possibly can. And in turn, if you're already uh, uh, on the way to doing great work, you better choose good students. Now, would you like me to go further in this process? Well, I did want to pursue that a little more. You mentioned only five universities, and I imagine a couple of them have, uh, you know, acronyms that re- that you know sound like MIT, <laughs> for example, um, or well, actually, Harvard. That, that, that's not true. Oh, of MIT, Harvard, yes, Berkeley, yes. Uh, Harvard, Columbia, Berkeley, Johns Hopkins, and Princeton. But your instinct about MIT was right because um, one of the things that's important in rankings is that you want to be uh, clear that the difference between rank one and rank two 
uh, is more or less the same as rank two and rank three. And in this sense, there is a big uh, cutoff point that if I had looked at um, at the top five that I just told you, Harvard, Columbia, Berkeley, Johns Hopkins, and Princeton, um, and if I were then to go down to um, the top... Um, the top 80% were still very, very clumped. So it's um, after Princeton, it's Chicago, Caltech, Illinois, MIT, and Yale. And, and then there's a, a cutoff point. And these create, as the title of your book suggests, kind of this clumping, the scientific elite. Is that right. a is that a good thing, that these things are, are concentrated so heavily? Well, good for what? Good for science? Good for the people in these places? Um I guess my sense is that, um, you, that as far as science is concerned, probably greater spread, um, somewhat greater spread, would not be a bad thing. But you have to take into account that it's not just a single laboratory or a single major senior person. It's a whole institution which has a great many resources in uh, the sense of first having a whole lot of really good students, not just in one particular lab or one particular department, but across the board. Um, not only a lot of good students. These are also the places that are dominant in getting federal science grants. So they're very well resourced. They have um, advantages over other places in the... Um, the laboratory equipment they have, the quality of um, you know library resources they have, as uh, uh, even when you think about it, the number of uh, very good assistant professors. So clumping is um, has its both its ups and its downs. And the most important thing to recognize is that this is the outcome, not of individual decisions. This is the outcome of the way the system plays out in a way that is not planned, but is um, also not unplanned. Uh, uh, There's immense competition between institutions to get the best people it can and to get the best students that they can, and, and so that the clumping also is a uh, an outcome of this of competition and the um, the uh, goodness I, I don't want to say monopoly but the the uh, greater concentration of opportunity at these places for good science and good scientists. So what this kind of clumping in the scientific elite it's more of a reflection of reward structures within science. Quite so. That puts it very well. It is a, um, as I began to think about it, it's a, uh, the process, processes involved is that uh, individuals and places where very good science is done um, have access to research grants and have access to good students and have access to all the things that help you, that don't guarantee, but that help you to do good work. You then get rewards of various sorts, rewards in the sense of uh, you get to publish in good places. Um, you get fellowships. You get um, 
the uh, mentorship of very good senior people. They they can um, have the uh, well. I'll put it this way: the the scientific wealth, not the money wealth, but the scientific wealth, to be able to get opportunities for their students. So their students do very well. There's no no question in my mind that these are excellent people. But are they any better, especially in the early period, are they any better than the ones who are not quite as fortunate as they have been? Um, but as time goes on, this um, uh, sequence of uh, getting better resources and getting more rewarded, once you're more rewarded, uh, you are also more likely to get more resources. And... Um, I think a very important piece of this story is that um, when uh, very able people have the opportunities to do the work that they do, they make better use of them. So that when you look at the, the their accomplishments over the course of their careers, they um, they become they, they they move farther and farther ahead of those who they started out with more or less at the same beginning year. And um, this is the result both of their talent and also their being um, beneficiaries of of what uh, I ended up calling accumulation of advantage, uh, which over the course of time um, marks the careers of Nobel Prize winners. It also marks the careers of people that don't get Nobel Prizes. There are, uh, are a number of great, great scientists who, for one reason or another, don't get Nobel Prizes. And so the the scientific elite is indeed made up of Nobel Prize winners. But when you talk to knowledgeable scientists, they know. They know that there are others who are have made just as important contributions, but who, for one reason or another, haven't gotten Nobel Prizes. Now... You're talking a lot about this kind of accumulation of advantage um, that kind of takes place at these higher institutions that have these incredible um, these incredible advantages of things like equipment and people. Those higher institutions and that scientific elite is not very diverse. Um, it tends to be white men of European descent in Europe and the United States. Is that, what does that mean, and is that changing over time? I think it means that from the the early part of the careers of these people, but from the time they were in undergraduate school, uh, they, the places they went as undergraduates were full of white men. And um, the number of women who... Uh, have the have begun careers in the sciences has increased very greatly in the last thirty years. I mean, very greatly. You're now beginning to see women holding major professorships in major universities, and you're now beginning to see women being elected to the National Academy of Science, uh, which was only um, you know a minuscule number. Uh, four or five decades ago. Well, now, uh, women are beginning to, to move into this group and in fact, uh, have, uh, certainly begun this ascent 
in that the people that they study with are are the kinds of people that their men of more or less the same ages have studied with. Now, it's important for you to note that when we think diversity, we think gender, but it's also white women. Uh, there are very few, I mean, uh, precious few um, black women scientists who uh, have begun to make major careers. Now, I will say in the United States that uh, the diversity has increased because of, the, of continuing immigration from places like India and uh, Japan and uh, other places that might produce a more multi-ethnic uh, population. But you're right. It is a, a white male um, population, um, but decreasingly so. Uh, I, I'm on the, the uh, board of a scientific publisher, and uh, we look very carefully at the editorships of the journals we publish. And it's quite amazing as you look at the names of people who are proposed by their, but to be on editorial boards. The names look much more um, diverse than uh, they did 10 years ago. Uh, you know, more people who came to the United States for graduate school and then stayed. Um, and then in addition to that, more women. So, yes, it is a uh, not-so-diverse uh, population, but it's changed a lot. And, uh, you know, how can it be but not for the better? Uh, because uh, it means you have larger and larger pools of uh, able people to draw upon. So that what you say is correct, but um, I'm not even sure one can say that that it, where women are concerned, it was only the outcome of uh, gender discrimination. Some of it was, to be sure, but not all of it. Uh, some of it was the outcome that uh, women uh, 20 to 30 years ago didn't major in the sciences nearly to the degree they are now, didn't major in mathematics. Um and then as time went on, um, they did, and that then produces, when you look at people who get PhDs, an increasing share of women among those who earn PhDs in the sciences than has been the case for a very long time. Dr. Zuckerman, thank you so much for your time. It has been an elite experience. Oh, well, thank you. It's, it's it's, I enjoy talking about all of this because I had a, uh, I was a very, very lucky researcher in choosing a, a great problem and really marvelous research subjects. So thank you. Bye. We've linked to more information about Harriet Zuckerman's work at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next, we've talked about the Nobel Prizes. But have you heard of the IG Nobel Prizes? Stay tuned. <laughs> Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back. 
The Nobel Prizes are the epitome of scientific pomp and circumstance. The winners meet world leaders, and their work becomes a byword for important scientific achievement. But there's another prize that's also given out every fall that's got a slightly different reputation. For 27 years, the Ig Nobel Prizes have celebrated the weird, wild, and wacky in the world of science, from dead salmon in MRI machines to the fluid properties of cats. But they have one thing in common with the Nobel Prizes. People do get to shake a Nobel Prize winner's hand at the end. Their founder is with us today, Mark Abrams, editor of the magazine Annals of Improbable Research and founder of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. Mark, welcome, welcome, and thank you for being with us. Hi, Bethany. Now you founded the Igs. Why did you do it? In 1991, I unexpectedly became the editor of a science magazine, and.、Uh, Suddenly began meeting all kinds of people who had done things that were very unusual, and、um, I kept thinking most of these people are going to go their whole lives, and almost nobody will ever know what they did, which is a shame. Somebody should should do something to to get them some attention. And then I realized we could do something, so started talking to a bunch of people, and that pretty quickly turned into the Ig Nobel Prize ceremony. The first one was that year, 1991. It was held at MIT because、uh, I got introduced to somebody who ran a little chunk of MIT, told him this idea, and he smiled and said, "Would you like to have it here?" So we had a place to have it, and I had met a lot of、um, well-known scientists that first year when I was editing the magazine. So I called up four of them who had Nobel prizes and seemed to have a sense of humor, and told them we're going to have this ceremony at MIT. Would you like to come and help hand out the prizes? And all of them said sure.、And、they showed up, all of them wearing strange hats. And I also had run into、uh, a lot of、um, journalists, especially science journalists. So invited some of them to come, and a bunch of them came. And then we put out a notice on the internet, which was much smaller in those days, saying that the first annual Ig Nobel Prize ceremony will be held at MIT on such and such a date. It's free this first year, but you need a ticket. And to get a ticket, you have to go to such and such office at MIT at noon on whatever day. And it was overwhelmed with people who wanted to come. That first ceremony, we had people really almost crawling up the sides of the building trying to get in. And everything happened to go really well that first year. It got a lot of press attention around the world. And because we got lucky that first year. I th- I'm pretty sure that was why we were able to do it a second year and on a much bigger scale, and that has just continued year after year. And this is the 27th of those years. We're just getting started. The 27th first annual Ig Nobel Prize. That, that's correct. And correct. I've actually been able to attend a couple of Ig Nobel Prize ceremonies, and they are always packed to the doors and delightfully odd. Weird hats is kind of just the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about the ceremony itself? Oh yeah, that's just the beginning.、Uh, it's in the fifth year we moved it down the road from MIT to Harvard, and it's been held ever since then. It's it's held in a big theater, the biggest theater at Harvard,、um, a place called Sanders Theater, which is a grand, old, majestic place. It's also the biggest classroom at Harvard. Fits eleven hundred people. In the audience, it's always filled on Ig Nobel Night. We've been webcasting it every year since what 
And the audience is as entertaining to all of us on stage, I think, as we are to them. Uh, the audience also brings paper airplanes. That's a tradition that started in the second year, and they throw them at the stage. People on stage sometimes throw them back at the audience. Uh, up on the stage waiting to greet the new Ig Nobel winners are a bunch of Nobel Prize winners. The criterion is a little unusual for these prizes, different from all other prizes. Ig Nobel Prizes are for things that make people laugh and then think. And uh, we have a, a policy that in almost all cases, when we choose a winner, we get in touch with that person or that group very quietly. We offer them the prize and give them the chance to decline this great honor if they want to. And happily for us, almost everyone who is offered an Ig Nobel Prize decides to accept. Because it is kind of a a little bit of kind of a, I guess, a, a send up of, uh, I mean, is it, does it have to be good science? Does it have to be peer reviewed science? I mean, what are kind of these the scientific requirements? Because it is a little bit of a, a send up of the concept of scientific prizes in a way. The answer to all of those questions is no, and it doesn't have to be science. It doesn't have to do with any, it doesn't have to have anything to do with science. Remember, again, the requirement is things, achievements that make people laugh and then think. Now, many of them, most of them, do have some connection to science. But as to good or bad, as to valuable or worthless, that really does not enter into it at all. Part of the reason for that is that if you look back over the history of things, especially the history of science and medicine and technology, all you know, I'm going to make a statement which I think is is true or or almost almost completely true, but you may disagree. If you look back over the history of science, technology, medicine, almost everything that we now look at as being very important discoveries, developments, whatever, almost all of it, when it was new, when it was just starting. It was not seen that way at all. In almost every case, the people who were doing this stuff or who stumbled across something, some discovery, when they told people what they were doing, generally most people would uh, not pay a lot of attention or would laugh at them or, or would just shake their head wondering why is somebody wasting their time on such a specific crazy thing. And then some of these things turned out to be pretty interesting and some of them turned out to be things that later became very important. And once that happens to something, the whole early history, the part of the early history about how everybody reacted to it tends to disappear. There was, uh, now, of course, we're not the first to notice that. And uh, there was a book that Ira Flato wrote about 20 or 30 years ago. Ira Flato is uh, you know, the creator and host of the Science Friday radio program. And his book was called They All Laughed. And it was a, a history of a lot of these cases of things that became important where the early response to whatever it was, was people laughed. And he, he took the title, as you probably know, from an old Gershwin song called They All Laughed. They all laughed at Christopher Columbus. They all laughed at Edison, all these things. So how's that for a long answer? Well, I, and it seems actually I, I'm reminded of one of the Ig Nobel Prizes um, that was given out a few years ago where people did laugh, but it's actually been incredibly important. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the dead salmon in the MRI machine. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that one? Yeah, that's one that was designed uh, mostly to make a point and to try to do it in a way that 
might get people's attention. The uh, the dead salmon experiment was, I'll tell you what they were aiming at and then what they did. These are some scientists who use fMRI machines, uh, the MRI machines. They use magnetic resonance da, 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 machines. Uh, they look, they take pictures, images of the insides of bodies and other things. And there's been a whole gigantic um, scientific medical enterprise using these very complicated, expensive machines to try to get pictures of what's going on inside people's bodies, the bodies of other animals, um, inside people's brains. And the F part, the functional part, means that they uh, will take a lot of images over a very short period of time, put those together, and you get a sort of movie and you can see how things are changing. Now, the problem is that these machines are measuring something, but what they're measuring may or may not be tightly related to the interpretations that people, other people give to the pictures that come out of these beautiful pictures that pretty much everybody's seen about brains and all sorts of other things. And a lot of the scientists who work on this stuff are really concerned that Sometimes these machines get used and the interpretations are very careful, and other times the interpretations are what you could generously call fanciful. And to make the point that you need to be really, really careful if you want to to be accurate in what you're saying, they followed the standard procedures that a lot of scientists use in interpreting some pictures. And they took some pictures that they knew would be completely meaningless. They took some dead salmon, dead fish, stuck the dead fish into one of these machines, took some pictures of the brain, and then using the standard interpretation techniques, they pointed out that, wow, there seems to be lots of activity in this brain. Obviously, this salmon was thinking of all sorts of things and responding to things. And their report was a giant exercise in trying to get people to pay attention to how easy it is to overinterpret data, to, to look at something that people are telling you is meaningful and grand and to leap to the conclusion that, yes, it is meaningful and grand without spending even a moment wondering, could there be something a little wrong here? Or could this be misinterpreted? And it, it worked. It worked. It got a lot of attention. It got a lot of angry attention, really angry attention from a bunch of people who professionally use these machines and interpret things. It got a lot of appreciative attention, I think, from the majority of people in that field who do try to be very careful and who were very upset for a long time, seeing that many of their colleagues were not so careful. But it's, it's a case where, uh, as far as I can tell, trying to, to follow what's happened, uh, people set out to try to get the attention of their peers about a problem, and they did. And from what I've been told by a lot of people in that whole world, uh, in general, people are more careful now as a result of <laughs> the dead salmon incident than they were before in, in, in trying to interpret what they see. Now, that's not to say that the world got perfect because from from lots of uh, complaints in that world and outside that world, the, the general problem is still very much with us of, of people a lot of people um, putting out interpretations of things that may be rather fanciful. Is there, are there any uh, prizes that have kind of 
gone pear-shaped in in the other direction? Have any of them kind of turned out to be problematic or or been kind of perceived very negatively? Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, some that um, that get more appreciation than the, the the winners may have quite anticipated or desired. One is a prize we gave last year, 2016, the Ig Nobel Chemistry Prize, went to Volkswagen, to the company Volkswagen in Germany, because they um, invented a, a new way to deal with the problem of automobile pollution. And their way of dealing with it is, was to um, arrange the computer machinery in, inside the car, the car so that um, whenever the car was being tested to measure its pollution, uh, it didn't produce any pollution or not much. Uh, they they did not get a lot of favorable attention, but they did get a lot of attention around the world. In fact, every talk that I've given during the past year in many countries where I mentioned uh, that particular prize, it's it's been interesting to see that as soon as I mentioned the name Volkswagen, everybody started applauding and laughing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's some it's some impressive. I don't know if I would give the prize for chemistry or for computer science. That's um, you're pointing out something that, that applies to a lot of things that have won Ig Nobel prizes. That they're not always easy to categorize. Sometimes something could be easily put into any of five or ten or fifty different categories, and then sometimes it's hard to even come up with a category to invent a category that seems to cover it. An example of that would be the prize we gave oh, twenty years ago, almost to a man named Troy Hurtabies, who lives in North Bay, Ontario, Canada. Troy won his prize because he had spent years creating and, and developing and then personally testing a suit of armor that he hoped would protect him against grizzly bears. <laughs> I think I remember this prize. <laughs> there are beautiful films of it. There was a a documentary, which you can find online, called Project Grizzly. It's produced by the National Film Board of Canada. And you can see um, the whole history of that up to that point, including video of lots of the tests. And I remember that year after we'd chosen it, we really struggled to come up with a category that would describe that. <laughs> how, how do you describe this in just a couple of words? And um, what we finally came up with was a new category. I think the only time it's been used was for that prize that year. And the category was safety engineering. It's a good one. How? So you mentioned that um, people are trying to come up with categories. How do you select? You say you get thousands of nominations a year. How do you select an Ig Nobel Prize winner? With great difficulty and and much happiness, we um, anybody can send in a nomination, and lots of people do from around the world. Um, Ten to twenty percent of all the nominations that come in are people nominating themselves. And as I mentioned before, it's it's rare that self nominees will win. A lot of scientists and and doctors and other people will send us things that they notice in their own professional journals, professional world. Um, a lot of um, people from outside the science world will will know of things and send us um, nominations. We ourselves are always looking. A lot of journalists send us nominations, by the way, of things that they run across, especially things that they, as a journalist working a particular beat, really can't write about. It's outside their professional world. So they send it to us, which is a nice thing for us. I will say I'm definitely nominating someone this year. 
Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm also nominating myself just for the joy of putting nominated for an Ig Nobel Prize on my resume. <laughs> we will give you full consideration. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And we do have lots of arguments. The, the group that makes a decision is a, a large, somewhat shadowy group called the Ig Nobel Board of Governors. We have meetings here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I am um, pretty much every month around around the clock, around the, the, the year um, to go through these. But also throughout the year, we're having lots and lots of smaller meetings and discussions uh, by email, Skype, phone, whatever, um, with, with people in many countries. And the arguments are really fun. <laughs> Unfortunately, they're secret, so I can't tell you some of the funniest things that have ever happened. But those uh, being in those meetings is a, is a very happy experience. Now, I just have to ask, has there been anyone who has won both a Nobel and an Ig Nobel Prize? Yes, there have been two so far, or depending on how you measure it, one. <laughs> I will explain that. The The clearer case is Andre Geim, who in the year 2000 was awarded an Ig Nobel Prize in physics. He and a colleague, Michael Berry, they're both physicists in England, they won their Ig Nobel Prize for using magnets to levitate a frog. Did it work? Ten years, yeah. Wow. Yeah, they, they discovered you can use magnets to, to levitate all kinds of things, including even a drop of water, um, strawberry. You could levitate a person if you had magnets set up the proper way and strong enough. And it, they did that partly because they had stumbled across this this aspect and use of magnetism and nobody in their professional world believed them. <laughs> uh, it was Andre Geim who first stumbled across it and then Michael Berry um, gave a lot of the, the theoretical explanation of how this was working. And Andre, to, to try to get the attention of physicists that, hey, magnetism is much more interesting than you think it is, <laughs> um, levitated a frog and, and wrote that up. Ten years later, Andre Geim was awarded a Nobel Prize in physics for something a little different. But the story of that sounds equally goofy to most people. And uh, that's something that Andre is, is very proud of. Because it involved um, scribbling with a pencil on some paper and then using scotch tape to lift off what he'd scribbled and then flexing the scotch tape many, many times until the little gray bits of the pencil uh, fell off. And within those gray bits, he discovered, he and one of his students, uh, by, they discovered by, by looking at it under a microscope, they got the first usable samples of a material called, called graphene, a two-dimensional form of carbon which a lot of people were pretty sure existed, but nobody had been able to get enough of this stuff to start playing with it and testing its properties and understanding it until they had their little Friday night um, gleeful experiment with a pencil and some scotch tape and some paper. Well, Mark, thank you so much. It is always a pleasure. Thank you, Bethany. You can find out more about the Ig Nobel Prizes. We will link to the webcast as well as the webcast of the lectures the next day at scienceforthepeople.ca. There you will also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe to the show, contact us, leave us a friendly review, or tell us how awful you think we are. We have also got a link to our Patreon, and if you feel the urge, please consider helping us out with a monthly donation so we don't have to promote delivered meal plans and mattresses. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. 
Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 